back and I'm joined by our weekly Friday guest, former member of Congress, former chair of the House Administration Committee and political analyst Bob Nay. Hello, Bob. Welcome. Hey, hey good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good morning. Um, much to the dismay of the White House, let's begin with Joe Biden and his aides. Um, as I, I at the top of the show, I talked about John Stewart's return to the airwaves and spending his mm-hmm. 20 minutes of his first show on Biden's age and saying, why is the White House angry at us for asking questions? Their job is to assuage our concerns. I see that he stumbled a couple of times uh, going up Air Force One. And now we learn that uh, he's got some cheat sheets that he uses as fundraisers. Not that that is new. But I right. just wonder whether I could get your reaction to all of this. Right. You get, Kevin, a couple of things. John Stewart, um, I saw where uh, – and I, I you know, see uh, some of the progressive sites, and I look at the conservative sites. You know, I try to look at everything. But uh, some of the progressives were very angry at him saying anything, and he, you know, hit back at them. Hey, you know, it's comedy, and some of this is also worth talking about. Uh, and – after, of course, the prosecutor's report questioning the president, his age, et cetera, statistics and polling came out, which reinforced that even more people are more concerned about Biden's age than they are Trump's age. And then they have the uh, short stairs to Air Force One they've been using for the president. Trump had used them during bad weather, by the way. And the short steps, of course, mean you go up less steps. But two days ago, he stumbled twice going up the short steps. And then uh, the article that I paid a lot of attention to, Kevin, because I have I have done many, many private fundraisers where, uh, for example, I would fly to California for another member. I used to do a lot of them. And, you know, you get your briefings um, and I'm I'm understand I'm not the president, but in these fundraisers, people have paid a lot of money and they expect in the private fundraisers questions to be answered, et cetera. And more off the cuff is what they expect, not a teleprompter situation, et cetera. So the donors are publicly talking, at least through the media sources, that they're concerned. Uh, They're concerned about him using notes to provide detailed answers uh, of questions at these private fundraisers. So I think it's fair game uh, when you have to use detailed notes at the fundraisers and then the staff answers, well, you know, they – they like him to, uh, you know, be well prepared. But again, when somebody's paying at these events and they are looking for off-the-cuff, non-scripted answers, they're going to they're going to talk about it. That's this is just a political fact of life, having done you know fundraisers for years. So yeah, that, that's another that's thing right. that came that came up. And 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 another brick on the load of of uh, Biden's troubles is there's a flare-up politically over his handling of the border with his own caucus, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus is mad at him, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is mad at him, and we'll learn soon how uh, the Israel-Gaza conflict is going to affect him in places like Michigan, which has big uh, Arab populations. Uh, it, you you will get to Trump in a minute, but um, there's there's a lot going on for Biden that he has to deal with politically. Well, there is, and, and the border is a, is a huge one. Uh, 
people will say, look, Trump interfered in the border uh, in the Senate and then it hurt the border bill, et cetera. But on the other side of it, uh, Biden will have fair criticism by people who want something done at the border uh, because he has sat for three years, frankly, and very little has been done. And he had Kamala Harris as VP was assigned to the border from day one. And again, very little, uh, if nothing, was done at the border. So now, as he's, you know, engaging in this because it is a, a high-profile, uh, bad statistic for the president when you look at the groups and the polling, he's now entered into a new realm of getting criticism on the other end of it, and that's from the Hispanic Caucus. Now, this one, Kevin, raised eyebrows, raised my eyebrows, because the Hispanic Caucus asked to meet with him in December, and they were rebuffed by the White House after they requested a meeting. So I can't understand why, you know, uh, Hispanic Caucus, which is going to be, you know, incredibly Democrat, uh, why they were not given, you know, a, a meeting. And also because of the policies now that Biden's trying to do, do, which some are mimicking what Trump did, again, as you said, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is accusing him right out front of mimicking Donald Trump, and she says the new restrictions are absolutely outrageous. So, you know, he's getting it, uh, you know, from both ends. One other thing, Kevin, I did want to mention too is I, I monitor a lot of the social media with progressives, especially ones that I met in the last Democratic National Convention that I had covered, and they, uh, and there's some from Michigan. They have said point blank because of the Israel-Gaza situation that they are not going to, quote, come home for the president, and they are going to teach him a lesson by absolutely not voting. They won't vote for Trump, but by not voting. So I think that uh, the White House has to take that serious because usually, as we say, people come home politically. I'm not sure some of the young progressives will do that in Biden's case. And then, of course, there's former President Donald Trump, and uh, I'm reading some reports that his fundraising is off. We all know that he uses that fundraising to pay his millions of dollars in legal bills. Uh, is this a, that his fundraising is down? Is this a major red flag or uh, just a, a blip on the screen? Right now, this one's a major red flag because Trump had an unbelievable ability, like a vacuum cleaner, to take in campaign money with with no problem, you know, very little effort. And now, this week, there was a report that, again, I agree with the assessments that it's a it's a very bright warning sign, and it shows the two key committees in his political system raised 13.8 million in January. Now, let's compare that for, you know, one second. If you look at what um, uh, Haley, uh, as a presidential candidate, Nikki Haley, if you look at what she raised, uh, you know, she did pretty good. She took in 3 million last month. And so January 13 million for Trump, is not only not good, but also it all went out the window and it's going out in legal fees, which raises a point 
that Asa Hutchinson, who ran for president for a while this year in the Republican primary, says that uh, the Republican National Committee should absolutely use none of its money, which, by the way, they don't have as much as they should. They should use none of their money, Asa says, to pay Trump's legal fees through their RNC. So it's going to be interesting to see. But right now, I, I, I don't think it's a blimp as much as it's a, it's a big warning sign. And, and lastly, Bob, there is a uh, presidential primary coming up this weekend in South Carolina. Uh, U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley, former governor there, is facing off against Trump. She was Trump's U.N. ambassador. She has turned against him and is being very critical of him now. Um, what's going to happen in that primary this weekend? Well, Trump's going to win the primary. Some say in polling this week he'll take take it by 70 percent. I would assume, and of course she was governor there, and it should be a win. Uh, that's normally um, – that is a get-out-of-the-race sign for you if you can't win your home state. If you're running for president, you were former governor. But in this case, uh, I, I, it, I don't think it matters what happens with Nikki Haley on Saturday. Now, if she could come out you know, 60%, 50%, that's, that's okay. She's going to lose the state. But she's going to remain in this because the money is still going – to Haley, and and I've been saying this for about two weeks now, as long as she has money, she's going to continue maybe thinking what nobody really wants to say publicly too much. But if, you know, Biden drops out at some point in time, takes Harris with him, the end result is Trump's numbers could change. So Nikki Haley's going to lose. But no matter what, I think she's in there because there's a lot of states left with Super Tuesday and, and after that. So, yes, she'll lose, but I think she will remain in the race. There you go. Okay, well, we'll stay tuned. Bob Day, as always, for our Friday chats, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Kevin. We're back. And for several weeks, I wanted to get an update on the mayor's race uh, happening in Burlington because – for the first time in the city's history, they are set to elect a woman as the mayor of that city, the same city that Bernie Sanders was mayor of, and we wanted to get the inside scoop. So we asked Courtney Lambden from Seven Days, the Burlington reporter there, to come on the show and give us an update. Courtney, welcome. Thanks for having me. So Joan Shannon, who I characterized as the top at the top of the show as something of a moderate Moreau Weinberger style Democrat and Emma Mulvaney Stanek, a kind of a Bernie progressive. Uh, they are duking it out. What's the latest? Yeah. So we are very close to town meeting day and um, what we're looking at in Burlington is really a race centered on one real issue, which is public safety, which I've come on the show and talked about a number of times um, and that just seems to be the the issue that's on both the candidates' minds and voters. And, you know, it's, it's it's been an interesting race to cover because they are both talking about the same problems but have different ways of approaching them. Now, I've read both of their public safety positions, and I have been seeing Emma Mulvaney-Stanek on Instagram talking a lot about it. What is there something that separates the two of them? 
uh, that really stands out on public safety? Yeah, I think um, both of them are talking about it's, – it's a matter of emphasis, I think. <laughs> like both of them are talking about needing to hire more police and also the trying to address the root causes of things that lead to crime and disorder downtown. But I would say Joan is – the Democrat is emphasizing a lot more the need for police, whereas Emma – the progressive is talking more about the problems that lead to crime that police need to solve. So it's like I said, it's a matter of emphasis. I think it's just the way that they would approach these things. So, for example, um, Burlingtonians, people visiting Burlington have seen uh, people. It's, it's, it's more common these days, I guess, to see people using drugs in public, like at City Hall Park or other places. Joan says that police should arrest those people maybe not jail them because that's not really up to the police or the mayor that would be into the justice system. But she says continually, like we need to interrupt their day is how she puts it. And maybe that means arresting them and then finding a way for them to go into treatment. Emma, on the other hand, does not think that people who use drugs in public should be arrested. She, she says and emphasizes that, you know, people who are using drugs have a, a medical disease and that that, we should treat it that way. So that's just one example of how they, they differ on the same issue. Well, th that's pretty stark. Uh, and yeah. uh, as someone who, as someone who walks through city hall park a lot, it, it is a tough, tough issue. Uh, and we've had uh, Sarah George on this show many times to talk about that issue. And she's, she's like Emma. She's a lot less sympathetic with people like me who, you know, complain about walking through city hall park and, seeing the drugs in the open air it's uh it's do you do you believe that there are more voters on the joan shannon side of that equation or more on the emma side of that equation um it's really hard to tell that was one of the challenges with writing and reporting this story but you know i would say that folks in the joan camp are certainly um louder perhaps they it is not politically um advantageous i guess to in the current climate that burlington has to talk about you know not wanting to crack down on some of these things or at least not crack down on them on the way that joan is proposing i should be clear that emma is suggesting that once the police department is more fully staffed that she would station more police officers downtown as a way of deterring some of this behavior um and she also uh, wants to open an overdose prevention center, which she says would cut down on both the problem with needle litter that a lot of people have noticed and also people just using outside. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, I think that a section of this story is, is about how Emma's kind of progressive ideals could be a liability to her. Just the fact that she's a progressive, um, regardless of the things that she's saying, um, I think that people are less likely to, openly shout from the rooftops i agree with you know the progressive side owing all to the the june 2020 vote which i'm sure we've talked about a number of times that's really interesting the yeah i, I noticed that uh, city council president and former candidate for mayor karen paul endorsed joan shannon this week does that play a role in the in the race yeah it, it's interesting that endorsement came out late 
I would say, late only. It seems like we have some time to vote, but because Burlington mailed out ballots to everyone, um, a lot of people return those ballots pretty quickly. So in theory, like a large portion of voters may have already voted. Um, And so I don't know. I don't know if that will make a difference. Um, Karen definitely, I would say, is somewhere in the middle of Joan and Emma as far as her politics and, and how she views the public safety issue. So I think both Emma and Joan are kind of fighting for those more centrist uh, voters. And I don't know if Karen Paul's endorsement alone will sway them, but um, they're both trying to kind of fight for the middle. And, uh, you know, I know that Burlington likes to uh, pursue a foreign policy, and I know that the city council has taken up some a lot of time on the Israeli-Gaza uh, conflict. Has that been a, an issue in this race? Has the, have the two candidates been forced to deal with that and the, and the two, uh, the, the, the shooting that took place, uh, shooting of the three uh, Palestinian young men? Has that been a factor in the race? Um, I would I think that it has come up at a couple debates, but it has not been a central talking point. Um of the race. I mean, I, I believe I asked Emma in an interview but about it, but it didn't it didn't really make the story. It really isn't um, a major. Uh, I don't think it's something that that is uh, hinging people's votes, but it is something so that else, has come up just. Be, yeah. Yeah. So what so what are we missing here? What else is there going on in the campaign that besides public safety that they've been emphasizing? Yeah. So I think tied to public safety is is housing. Um, and, you know, with housing, there's also also leads to the kind of homelessness crisis that Burlington and, and a lot of other places are seeing. Um, there's an effort in Burlington right now uh, drawing from Mayor Weinberger's 10-point housing plan to rezone certain areas of the city. Um, and the council will be discussing on Monday one of these efforts. It's, they're calling it the neighborhood code, uh, which would um, allow for kind of like a, 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 well, in some people's view, a dramatic upzoning of certain parcels to allow uh, larger, more more dense types of development. Um, I believe that the candidates are both on record supporting that, but um, some of Joan's critics have pointed out her record on housing uh, as a potential, you know, they kind of doubt that she might be as aggressive as maybe Emma would be uh, to increase the city's housing stock. So that's been a, a point of conversation as well. Now, we we like to think that mayors are all powerful, but in true fact, the Burlington mayor, uh, you know, j- just cannot act like a president of the United States. He, can't, he or she cannot wave a wand and, and make things happen. There are lots of checks and balances built in. Uh, what is the new mayor going to find in the way of a city council when they arrive in office? Yeah, that's um, a great question and also one I don't know how to predict. Um, this town meeting, eight the eight ward seats, so the council has eight wards and four districts. Um, this time, the, the eight ward seats are up for re-election, and half of those um, are, are open seats, so like incumbents aren't running. Um, so that's, that's going to be interesting no matter what, uh, ha- happens, like whichever party takes those seats, half of those ward seats will turn over. So there will def, there will definitely be a different council dynamic. Um, you know, I think that we can look at his historical uh, data from elections and say, you know, probably 
the South End, which tends to be Democratic, will probably elect Democratic candidates. The Old North End, where uh, Emma is from, tends to lean progressive. But the city also did just redistrict um, its its voter boundaries. So the, what we what we typically thought of as you know the Old North End districts are actually more like Old North End plus downtown. And the folks who live downtown see a lot more of these public safety challenges. So whether or not that will skew more Democrat, I don't know. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch the, some of those races. Can you, uh, a huge issue is school taxes. Um, and I know, you know, you, you, Burlington is still struggling with the Burlington High School issue. Can you give us a update on that, on the Burlington High School uh, rebuild and redesign? What's going on there? Yeah, unfortunately, Kevin, this is not my area of expertise. <laughs> You'd have to ask my colleague, Allison Novak, who follows this really closely. But um, as far as I know, it is getting, it, last I knew, I guess, it, it's more expensive than they anticipated. Um, and I think that the fact that this bond is, is going to be um, repaid over these, these next few years is a real concern to voters heading into this town meeting day, given the really serious um, budget challenges that Burlington and a lot of school districts are seeing right now. Yeah, I mean, I know it's the job of the school board, but uh, but boy, the the mayor gets tagged with the good and the mayor gets tagged with the bad, and that that school is going to be an expensive. It may be necessary, but it is a lot of money. Now, Courtney, what are, what are we missing on the race? What else What else should uh, potential voters know about this race as they consider the the two candidates? Yeah, I mean, I think it's. Well, I think they should read my story for one. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of interest. This is a really important race for Burlington, given that this is the city electing its first new mayor in 12 years. Um, Moreau has been there for a long time now, and people could look at this as a as a way to maybe continue with his policies with Joan. Although I will say she does not agree align with him on everything. I think in some ways she um, would be slightly more conservative than Moreau is, or do they want someone like Emma who um, is definitely more to the left than Moreau? Um, it's not clear totally what dramatic changes she would make right off. You know, she, she has said like she doesn't want to come in and, and just clean slate. She wants to, she believes in continuity of government. So there probably wouldn't be big changes as far as department heads and all those things right off. Um, but I don't know. I think that's a question that voters will have to consider when they're deciding who to vote for. Okay. Well, uh, there is going to, a lot new is going to happen in city hall. The first uh, new mayor in 12 years, the first woman, and um, we will see how it goes. Courtney Lambden, as always, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks, Kevin. We are back at Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host. And now we turn, as we so often do on this show, especially on Fridays, to books. Thomas Christopher Green is our guest. He is a novelist and the founding president of the Vermont College of Fine Arts, not to mention the owner of Hugo's Restaurant in downtown Montpelier. He is the author of six novels, including the international bestseller, The Headmaster's Wife. And along with Montpelier-based Rootstock Publishing, Green has just released his latest work, 
Notes from the Front Porch, Tiny True Stories to Make You Feel Better About the World. He lives in Montpelier, but is also the pride of Worcester, Massachusetts. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate that. It's good to hear your voice. <laughs> okay. I have a long list of questions, and uh, and we just don't have enough time, but uh, let's let's start with you wrote most of these pieces, I think, on Facebook, which is where I first read them. Uh, what made you want to collect them in a book? Well, you know, so I started writing these during the sort of darkest days of the pandemic. Um, you know, and as I say in the foreword to the book, you know, I, you know, kind of, I'm an extrovert. I'm someone who's out and about around town. And suddenly, you know, I find myself basically alone. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd see my daughter and her mom live a block away a couple hours a day, and otherwise it was just me. So, um, you know, I've often said the reason to write books is to tell stories to people who aren't in the same room as you. So I started posting little stories on Facebook, positive stories, you know, things that could, people could sink their teeth into and say, oh, this is, this is a nice moment in life, you know. And uh, in the response to them, particularly a few of them that went viral, convinced me that maybe there was a larger audience that could benefit from reading these. And uh, tell me about, I want to start right in on the substance. I want to hear about the, what I'm calling the 1970s kid on the bicycle. <laughs> uh, and yeah. the, and my favorite quote is, he knew where to find me. That's right. Yeah, so there's, you know, there was there, there's seven different story, little stories about you know, my favorite neighborhood kid. Um, and, in fact, I did a reading when I did my book launch in Montpelier last week. Uh, his parents brought him, so it was really nice that he was there for that. Um, and he was just a charismatic kid who talked to everybody in the neighborhood. He went around on his bike, and he reminded me of me and my brothers in the 1970s, you know, where, uh, you know, he was just free-range. You never see him on a phone, never see him on a device. He's on a bike doing jumps. Um, you know, the only difference was he wears a helmet. But it was the same kind of, you know, life that we had growing up, so... Uh, and he would stop and talk to me, and we'd have fascinating conversations, and, and I capture some of those in this book. Yeah, I think there's uh, three vignettes about him, one in which he, he goes uh, hand, head over tea kettle off his bike, and uh, <laughs> yes. as, as, we, as we did in the 70s, he disappears for a, few, a bit and then uh, returns with a Band-Aid, and he's right back at it. Yeah, he comes he comes screaming down the street on a skateboard, and he said, I got it fixed, you know, Um yeah, so they're, they're, these are good slice of life moments about, you know, in some ways this book is a love letter to Montpelier. It's a love letter to the front porch culture we have here, um, to the set of neighborhoods where, uh, you know, neighbors know each other and people, um, you know, greet each other. And we're all part of, you know, a, a, a extended little web of a community here. Tom, what's the difference between uh, writing it on Facebook as opposed to the other kinds of writing you do? Well, one of the interesting things about this book is I wrote this entire book with one finger on my iPhone, um, you know, never thinking it was going to get published. And that actually had a really curious effect on the writing, I think, because I think it made it more immediate and intimate. And I kind of accidentally stumbled into a mode of storytelling that I hadn't really done before, um, you know, which is that, uh, you know, it's just this sort of like sit down and listen to me. I'm about to tell you a story kind of vibe. And that's what this book has, and I think that's one of the reasons people are responding so strongly to it, is that it has kind of an intimacy and a familiarity to it that is different. Um, obviously, writing a novel is a very different process. It's a it's a big long road. 
Um, there's a lot of architecture to writing a novel you have to think about, um, and a lot of plotting you have to do and other things. Um, you know, in, in this case, I really was just telling some of my favorite stories to people, you know, who happen to be around the world rather than across from me at dinner where I may tell these same stories the same way. Right. And, and you chose to publish with uh, Montpelier-based Rootstock Publishing, uh, as a pu- and you have all sorts of experience in the big time of New York publishing uh, and right. book tours, national book tours, et cetera. What was that like? What's the difference between those? What was your experience? Well, it's very different. I mean, it was a deliberate decision by me to go. I, I felt like this was a Montpelier book. And coming out of the flood and the things we've, we've had here, I thought it would be great to work with a local publisher. Um, Rootstock Publishing is a, is a hybrid publisher, which is not self-publishing, but is kind of an in-between model. Um, although in my case, they published me traditionally, which I really appreciated, and they, they took a risk to do that, a financial risk, of course. Um, but I wanted to do a local publisher, but I also thought that New York wouldn't necessarily understand this book. I mean, the thing about big publishing, and, and you're right, I've been with Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins, and St. Martin's Press have been the three publishers I've been with in a 20-year career writing novels. And um, I just didn't think that those places would understand this book and understand what I wanted out of it. I mean, it's a 140-page book. You can read it in an hour, an hour and a half. Um, The stories, in some cases, are a paragraph long. Some are four or five pages long. Um, It doesn't fit the general conventions and norms of what people look for in New York, where, you know, they expect a novel must be 75,000 words and it must be able to fit into a genre. What is this, a thriller? Is it this? Is it that? And so um, I just made a decision. I wanted to. I wanted this to look and feel a certain way, and I wanted the book to be a certain way. And, you know, working with Sam, the publisher at Rootstock, I knew, and when I talked to her the first time, I knew we could put out something that would be a beautiful book and would, and would kind of fit the, the kind of mission of what I wanted to accomplish by putting it out into the world. Okay, I got it. There's one story I got to talk about, which is the 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 Rhode Island. You you have been, uh, as as we just said, you you've tasted the big time of New York publishing, but you have also tasted the that the the book reading at some uh, bookstore in a mall where there's two people and one of them is your yep. is, you know a cousin or whatever. Uh, yeah, there's a niece. story. There is yeah. a, there's a story about you going to Rhode Island. Um, yeah. To uh, tell us about that, and you you roll that out slowly. Yeah. So I mean, I, you know, I was on I was on book tour for my novel, The Perfect Liar, and 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 my publicist in New York booked me at a at a really beautiful inn on the Rhode Island coast, um, and it was winter time. It was February, so it's a place that is I'm sure packed and very hard to get into in the summer. But when I arrived, I appeared to be the only guest, um, and it was this beautiful inn on this cliff looking at the ocean. And when I, the bellhop met me in the in the driveway and took my bags. And when he opened the door, it was like when the Queen of England comes back, uh, you know, to the palace. Like all the staff were lined on the staircase hallway, the chefs with their hats on, and the the you know the the, the bellboys and the you know the cleaning people, and everybody was in that hallway. And like I ran a gauntlet through them, and they were all like welcoming me. And and that began what was really an extraordinary kind of eight hours of of elite service, <laughs> you know, where they were providing me with very expensive champagne and they gave me a BMW to drive to my reading. And I was like, what is going on with this place? It's amazing. I think it's the most amazing hotel I've ever been to. 
Well, yeah. the, the the real story of that, you know, the, the sort of Cinderella version of that is that, you know, later that night at dinner, the owner of the inn came down uh, to meet me, and he, he saw my book, uh, and he said, um, he introduced himself, he was a British gentleman, very dapper, uh, you know, three-piece suit on, and he saw my book, and he said, oh, the perfect liar, he's like, that's the story of my ex-wife, and he laughed at that, and he said, you know, I, I have to tell you, I've never read any of your books, and, um, uh, but, you know, I have seen some of the movies, and I thought of, is there an alternate universe where all my books are movies, and then he started naming them, and he said, you know, there's the one with Matt Damon and the sick kid and the one with, oh, Tom Cruise, and he's in that law firm. And I was like, the firm. I was like, that's, that's not me. That's John Grisham. I was like, John John Grisham wrote those books. He's like, oh, that's not you. And the next morning when I got up, you know, after I'd been given all this splendid experience and, and was leaving, you know, uh, the same the same bellboy at the, at the desk who had opened this, like, $200 bottle of champagne for me when I arrived the day before – and I asked him if they were still serving breakfast. He told me no, but he's like, there's a Dunkin' Donuts out by the highway. So <laughs> my, uh, my, 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 I guess that's what John Grisham lives like when he goes on tour. And uh, uh, we, we have some friends in common, but I've never met him. I, and I'm, I'm dying for him to read that story because uh, I think he'd get a huge kick out of it. Oh, God. Oh, it's just, I was laughing out loud when I read that story. Uh Tom, there are there's Fenway Park, uh, as any good Vermont uh, book includes. There's a story about Fenway, and there's yes. something about, and I my note here says the surge of youthful athletic adrenaline uh, when you arrive at Fenway <laughs> and walk on and see the field. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I remember the first game I went to Fenway. It was 1978. I actually remember I saw an unbelievable pitching matchup for baseball fans. It was Gaylord Perry against Ferguson Jenkins, um, two Hall of Fame pitchers. And I remember my father taking us to a game and and seeing that that cathedral and that green green grass, greener than any grass you've ever seen in your life. You know, it just it just and I wanted my daughter to have that experience. So so I took her to a game. I think when she was four or five. Um, and she could have cared less about the game, but she just wanted to catch a baseball. She wanted a baseball the whole time. And we had really good seats. I sprung for good seats. It was early in the year. It was April. It was like an April game, maybe the third or fourth game of the season. We were in about the third row. And uh, and the whole time she wanted a ball. And and I was trying to explain to her that it just doesn't happen. I mean, it's, you know, you can do the math on it. I don't, there's 50 foul balls in a, in a, in a game, and there's 33,000 people in the stands. What are the chances of catching a ball? Uh but lo and behold, a ball was hit. John Lester was on the mound for the Red Sox against the Oakland A's. And a ball was hit, and it went way behind us. It looked like it was going out of the stadium. And for some reason, I just stood up and started walking up the stairs. And I was watching it. And I could see it spin. And it was going out of the stadium, and suddenly it was coming back. And I had that moment of sheer terror that you have as, like, a Little League player when you're playing right field and there's a towering fly ball, and it's coming right at you. And suddenly it is coming right at me. And, and so are tons of people who also want to catch this ball, and I can just hear them like zombies. But I don't um, – I ignore them completely. I keep my eyes on it. And miracle of miracle, I hold out my hand, and it goes right into it. And I catch the yeah. ball, and everybody goes crazy. They put it on the jumbotron, and they're like, nice job, Dad. I came down and gave it to my daughter. Um, my hand was swollen for like two days, but it was entirely worth it. Oh gosh, yes, fatherhood moments where you're, you you'd likely beat up anybody within your vicinity. 
Um, okay. you know, we get, we're going to be heroes. We get to be heroes very rarely, you know, so you got to take it when it comes. Oh, isn't that the truth? Tom, you, uh, you spoiled my, my line by saying you type most of these stories out on one finger on your phone. I was going to ask you, uh, cause I, I, you reading the stories conjures up a, you know, the, uh, the writer's garret on your front porch with a little, little tray table and your computer. Yes. Um, did you, but you really did. I think uh, listeners would be surprised about the one finger tapping. Yeah, it is. A, it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, uh, in my professional life, you know, I, I texted so much that I, I'm a very fast texter. Um, I write on, I write on a laptop when I'm writing, you know, I'm writing a novel right now. I write on a, I write on a laptop. So I'm, I'm working on that. Uh, you know, when I, when I write, I write on my porch, I write on a laptop and what you might imagine. Um, but these, I didn't intend to get, I didn't intend to publish or anything. So, you know, when I, I would come back and I would usually do it at the end of a long day or, you know, a day of working and walking and during the pandemic and doing the other things you were doing during that time. And, um, and I would just type out a story for people with one finger. Um, and, uh, and it's kind of remarkable. They, they have mostly survived in the book form in that, in that shape. You know, we changed some words, did some editing, tightened things here and there. But in general, they are as they appeared when I, when I wrote them first on social media. There are stories in this book about driving the car to McDonald's and singing with your kids, uh, infuriating smoke alarms, which had me in tears because I experienced the same, <laughs> same thing. The thrill of getting into Harvard, um, and the shared experience of sports, uh, and many, many others. Uh, I, I, it's, it was just a, a blast. And as you say, you can do it in an hour and a half. Yeah, you can, you can read this quickly. I mean, one of the really interesting things was we did the book launch, uh, for this book at, at Hugo's in Montpelier, my restaurant, um, in the, in the beautiful third floor space there this week. And, and we had a, we had a full, full house. Um, but it hadn't occurred to me, you know, what was so strange about it was that there were so many people in the room that are actually in this book, you know, and it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a great, as I said, if you want to get up there, it's a good marketing advice for writers. If you want to, if you want to guarantee a big crowd at a book event, tell all your neighbors you wrote a book called Notes from the Porch and that they may be in it, they'll show up. Um, but it was a little surreal thinking about what to read because suddenly, you know, they're, they're not just characters in a book, they're real flesh and blood people in front of me, neighbors people in the community, friends, people I've written about, um, you know, you referenced the, the story about Harvard, you know, that was, a, you know, a, a, a Jamaican immigrant I know and, and the pride he had when his daughter called him at the bar to let him know that she had got into Harvard and how he just couldn't stop running and screaming about it. And it was such a great Montpelier moment, you know, that I think everybody felt his pride and everybody felt involved and in part of the community. So, yeah, that's all part of it. Okay. Give us, give us the inside story on, a former college president, uh, six novels, uh, the owner of a downtown restaurant, uh, and, you know, putting that, how, what's your day like? You know, we, we all have an <laughs> overflowing inbox. How do you approach each day? Is it always the same routine? Uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a creature routine. You know, I, I, I like to hike in Hubbard Park with my dog, Hugo, who's the restaurant named after in the morning. And that's, that's how I clear my head. Um, I try to write in the afternoon and, uh, uh, you know, early afternoon I try to write and, and then I'm, you know, I get to the restaurant usually around three o'clock or four o'clock and I do sort of restaurant related business three to five ish or so, but I don't, you know, and the restaurant is run by professionals, not by me. Uh, you know, people who really know how to run a restaurant. Um, I, you know, I, I created it and I built it and I'm intimately involved. 
in decision making around it, but um, you know the, the managing of it, the cooking is obviously done by other people. So, you know, so I have I have dinner there and I socialize, and uh, you know, and I come home and I do it again. It's a it's a it's a wow. it's a pretty darn good life right now. Okay, well, I'm going to steal from the New York Times book review for our last question. Uh, what authors, living or dead, would you sit down with to share dinner with uh, in, in your house? Yeah, I would, um, you know, it's funny. So New York Times has yet to call me for this, but I have had the chance to think about it in case they ever do. Uh, and uh, so I, I do have an answer ready for you on this. And, and one would be Julia Child, who, oh. you know, I, I just have she's an amazing human being, interesting, fascinating person. I have a deep love of food and, and the passion she had for food. And, and she is an author, so I would bring her. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, who is probably the late Cormac McCarthy, probably my favorite writer. Um, you know, I would just love to know uh, how his brain works. Um, and finally, Toni Morrison, you know, uh, the regal queen of literature, um, incredible writer, incredibly insightful. And I think we'd have a, I think we'd have a great time. And I'd love to host him at Hugo. So that would be a dream of mine. That would be yeah, but you'd have to beat off the uh, the autograph seekers with the stick. So you'd have to have <laughs> that's, a that's, secret private dining room. Yeah, that's right. Actually, I'm not, I'm going to reframe that. I'd love to have in Hugo's. I'd be a little worried about about having Julia Child at Hugo's, honestly. Um, but uh, yeah. you know, I think she'd be gracious, and she'd probably love, our food is great. But you know, when you have Julia Child, you're really going to put all, all the stops to make it work right. Well. Tom Green, uh, the author of Notes from the Front Porch, Tiny True Stories to Make You Feel Better About the World, released this week. Go to Bear Pond Books or anywhere else and get it. Uh, it's a great ride. Tom, thanks for joining us. Kevin, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you soon. That is our show for today. My thanks to Tom Green, Susan Clark, Bob Nay, and Courtney Lambden. Be sure to follow them online. Read their stuff. Patronize their work. They are interesting and provocative people. Uh, and you can follow them online or get their books in your local bookstore. You've noticed that I've been missing in action on Wednesdays. I stepped back from the Wednesday show to give me some time to pursue a long-desired uh, journalism project, a podcast I've been working on. More on that later. But for now, I'll be here every Friday for our Week in Review show. Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, email me uh, at Vermont Viewpoint, vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Remember, you can always stream this show live or listen later as a podcast at WDEVradio.com, anytime, anywhere. Find me at KevinKEllis.com, where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter and podcast called Conflict of Interest. Uh, I will see you next Friday for more talk about town meeting. Uh, got lots of guests in the queue. Uh, we're going to talk about the future of town meeting and what it means to this state. We'll get reports from uh, pretty much all week leading up to town meeting. We'll have reports from various towns about what's going on. Uh, our show is produced by me, engineered and made possible by people like Lee Cattell and Greg Titus and Danny McGivergan. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here next Friday for more discussion of politics and culture in Vermont and beyond, wherever you are. Join us right here on Vermont Viewpoint Live Radio on the friendly pioneer 92 years WDEV. 